beautiful, isn't it? It's really nice. You can hold it. What is it? It's a puzzle. And it's almost finished. Keep going. So if I solve it, do I get a prize? I do. Six configurations. It opens up and it cuts you. And then they come to collect. Everybody and welcome to the latest episode of Fresh Cuts. This is Mike. Joining me, as always, it's Mr. Venom in hell, maybe. How's it going, Venom? <laughs> Greetings and salutations, angels and demons. Yeah, it's pretty hot down here in hell for October, but I, I, everything heats up right around Halloween, so it makes sense. Yep, it's uh, the 90s are ever uh, sticking around uh, up here, too. Uh, so... You know, oh, actually, I the weather's great. <laughs> as far as the weather goes, yeah, SoCal. I mean, we've been pretty solid 85 for the last like week, week and a half. So I'm happy. Okay. Yeah, we're supposed to get back down to the 80s, I think, at the end of this week going forward. So I think this is just like a little last hurrah. But uh, yeah, it's 78 uh, degrees where I am right now. So yeah. <laughs> oh shit! I could use that. Um, all right, joining us as always, also in SoCal, possibly in hell. It's Don and Ellie. What's up, Don? Yeah, what's going on? Always great to f- escape from hell and uh, talk to you, guys. All right. Well, uh, it's interesting. October seventh uh, just happened to be one of those weekends, or yeah, Fridays and Friday and weekend that a ton of stuff released. And uh, so it was kind of like pick pick and choose what you want to cover, but probably the biggest title I'm I'm thinking uh, was uh, the one we had kind of decided on well ahead of time anyway. So it wasn't likely anything was going to dislodge it from being this episode's movie, and that would be the Hellraiser movie on Hulu. I. I uh, don't really want to call it a remake because, from what I'm understanding, it's it's not a remake. It's just a, another adaption from source material of Clive Barker. Uh, that'll probably play I think this is uh, some of the review. Well, I think this is a straightforward adaptation of the source material. I think that's the di- the difference. Is it a, a more straightforward one? Book? Yes. Okay. Yep. yep. Yeah. yeah. 
uh, novella. All right. All right, that makes sense because I've never actually read it, so yeah, I don't me neither. But... Judge of like how much it's been adapted. Oh well, I've got. <laughs> I, I'll have lots of stuff to talk about. <laughs> okay. Yeah, that's, I, that's yeah. Saying, I haven't read it either. I I just heard that this is a more straightforward adaptation. I think that's the mm-hmm. the main difference between this one and the original is that this one here I think is a pretty accurate one, or at least it's more accurate to the original novel than the original Hellraiser from the eighty seven is. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's, that's what I heard. Like, in I don't always discuss movies ahead of time of doing episode, but I made my way in a couple conversations, and from what I heard, that's what I, people were saying. Yeah, this one is at least it follows elements closer. I don't know about the whole thing, but Venom sounds like he'll have some insight on that. So I guess that's a signal to uh, get right into our general thoughts on Hellraiser. Starting with Venom, uh, what did you think of Hellraiser 2022? Okay, well, before I get into that, let me just uh, caveat this review with a little bit of my history with uh, Hellraiser and Clive Barker. I am, or was, I will admit, I haven't really read much over the last 20 years or so. Um, But in high school and uh, the early parts of college, I was an avid reader. A lot of King, a lot of Barker, a lot of Koontz, just, you know, a lot of horror and thriller type stuff. And I was a gigantic fan of the Hellbound Heart to the point that when it came out, when Hellraiser first came out, I didn't realize that it was an adaptation of the Hellbound Heart because there's nothing in the original trailer that says so. It was about, I don't know, 15 minutes into the movie that I realized, holy shit. This is the Hellbound Heart, and, you know, I was just very excited for it. So, yes, I am a gigantic fan. Currently, uh, the original Hellraiser sits at number 22 in my top 100 of all time, so I am a gigantic fan of both uh, the first two films. I have issues with the second one, but that's a conversation for another podcast. So, realize that this review is coming from a hardcore Hellraiser fan for over what? almost 40 years now. I think it was like mid eighties when the first hellbound heart came out, 84, 85, somewhere in that range. So yeah. So, uh, take my review with a grain of salt folks. This may be a shock considering the reviews that I've been reading and the opinions that I've seen from other podcasters, my friends, I fucking loved this movie. I loved every goddamn second of this film. It, this this is the Hellraiser movie that I've been waiting 30 plus years for. Just the, the beautiful set design, the great cinematography, amazing performances. I'll get to Jamie Clayton's spectacular performance as Hell Priest in a little bit here, but just overall, this David Bruckner just hit a absolutely hit a home run with this one. I know most people are going to say that his previous films were better. Um, the ritual. And I forget what the other big one, the night house, right? Yeah. The night house and the ritual. I know most people would say those are the better films and objectively I would probably say they are the better made films. I would rather watch this movie a hundred times out of a hundred than either of those other two films. I absolutely adored the Cenobite design in this one. The Cenobites didn't look like punk rock matrix rejects wearing black leather and safety pins all over their body. The, the way that they utilize their skin as their clothing, I thought was absolutely fucking brilliant. Uh, the new Cenobites were great. The gasp, the asphyx, the mask. I thought all of them were awesome. Awesome. I had no issues. And of course, to see the Chatterer back, my favorite Cenobite of all time, 
So, I mean, the, the fact that him and Hellpriest were the ones that they retained for the uh, for this remake, readaptation, reboot, whatever you want to go with, I don't care. Um, I absolutely adored it. I love this story. I love the fact that they actually get into the configurations, which was not done in the first two films. And I'm going to be referencing the first two films because beyond Hellraiser 2, I've only seen all of them once. And most of them I'd like to forget. But, of course, the first two are absolute horror classics. So I'll be referencing those more often than not. And, of course, the novella. But, yeah, folks, uh, the performances were great. I had no problem with character motivations. I had no issues with character decisions in the film. Our main character is a, a drug addict, so a lot of her poor decisions could be chalked up to her drug-riddled mind, and I'm very okay with that. I will absolutely give a pass to that. Uh, the gore, admittedly, is not there. It, it's not. We're not getting remotely the gore that we got back in 87. But you know what? Considering this movie was released the same weekend as Terrifier 2, I got my gore quota for this weekend. So I, honestly, I did not miss it in Hellraiser. I thought th this movie was definitely a more story-based. It wasn't set-piece-based. It wasn't gore-based. And for all the complaints uh, going into this movie of having a transgender woman playing Hellpriest, she's barely in the fucking movie, guys. I mean, she's like the Cenobite that has like the I think the mask is the only other one that has less screen time than Hellpriest. So, yeah, the complaints are I mean, we, I, I knew they were going to be unwarranted. Jamie Clayton is a great actress. Um Mostly for her TV work. I haven't really, I think this is the first feature I've ever, ever seen her in, but yeah, or him, her, I'm sorry. Um, so yeah, I mean, overall, I, I fucking adore this movie. I watched it on Friday night. As soon as it came out, it instantly rocketed into my top 10. I watched it again today, completely devoid of any um, herbal enhancements, and it rocketed into my top five. Yes, folks, I unapologetically adore this film, and I know I'm going to be in the minority on this one because I've read the reviews. Most of them are either lackluster or kind of middle of the road, and that's fine, ultimately. We're all entitled to our opinion, but let me tell you, I absolutely love this movie. I loved everything about it. I mean, it's it's not my number one by any stretch. Nothing is going to surpass my number one for 2022. I can't possibly imagine. But uh, yeah, this fucking movie was great. I will I will fight tooth and nail for this movie with anyone who says that this is either garbage or a waste of time or a cash grab. This was 100 percent not a cash grab. Just looking at the set design alone of the mansion and, of course, you know, the labyrinth that we were all familiar with from the original Hellraiser 2. This was absolutely not a cash grab. So, yeah. In my opinion, Hellraiser 2022 is an absolute triumph, and I will be singing its praises for, I would imagine, the next hour to 90 minutes. Who's next? Uh, that would be Don. What did you think of Hellraiser 2022? Well, let's get the boxing gloves on, because I'm not even going to call this disappointing. I'm going to call this a fucking train wreck. <laughs> I, I will agree with you on two points. I do think that it does look good. Um, I, I do like the, um, the way that the house uh, transpires, the you know configurations that come about with all of the various mechanics and all the you know logics and gears and stuff like that. That was really cool, and you know the the 
Cenobites are just amazing. Uh, I absolutely will die on that hill with you that they look even better than the pinhead from the mm-hmm. original. Um, just how the hell could you tell what was going on? This thing was so fucking dark. I had no clue what the hell was going on in here. <laughs> I I mean, Jesus Christ, whoever color graded this thing must have been Stevie Wonder's kid because this thing was just so damn hard to tell what was going on. I, I, I couldn't make anything out. I mean, I'm watching this thing in the middle of the day at one o'clock in the afternoon with curtains drawn and I can't even see anything because it's so dark. Like I, I, I make I I can recognize that they're characters because I see them from when they're lit up, but everything else in here was just so dark and just blab. I I, I couldn't make anything out in here, and it's even more drab because this thing was so long and dull. I I found myself zoning out more than once. And I, I didn't find the characters that interesting. I couldn't give a rat's ass about her history with drug issues. I couldn't give a rat's ass about any of the friends. I didn't find anything in here particularly interesting than when the Cenobites were on screen. I mean, you know, like in the original, they're the best part. But I don't know if it was just me or if it was something to do with the film. But everybody in here was just slow. Like, it felt as if they were directed to act slow, and I, I I couldn't figure out if that was just me, if I was, there. there's something wrong with my internet connection, if it was the film itself. I mean, I don't know if any of those factors were an issue for you guys, but it just, it felt slow. And I don't know, maybe that's the reason why it's two hours long. I, I don't know, but... Yeah, for me, it was just too slow. It, nothing really piqued my interest other than when the Cenobites were on screen. And it was just so dark. I, I couldn't make anything out what was going on. And yeah, I, I just felt myself zoning out all throughout the film. Maybe a few decent gore pieces, but again, you know, nothing that's all that spectacular from the sequels. So... <clears throat> I, I don't know. I mean, I, I'll I'll gladly give this another shot if it's given a re-edit or if, you know, there's somebody that can, you know, brighten the picture up or something. But, yeah, that I, I didn't care for this in the slightest. Okay. Um, well, ladies and gentlemen, history has been made. I uh, pretty much agree with Don on all of his points. <laughs> uh, I... I Actually, you know what? I would not go as far to call it a train wreck. I won't say th- that much. I'll. I would just say it's very middle of the road to me. I, I just uh, first of all, I'll get to what I what I agree with Venom on. Cenobites look cool. No issue there. No issue with the performance of uh, what is it? Hell Priestess or Hell Priest in Hellpriest. this. Hell yeah, priest. it's just Hell Priest. Yeah, I think that was okay. the yeah, title. In the Don't credits. say Priestess. That's sexist. Okay, yeah. <laughs> okay. Yeah, the, all the that credits, stuff is good. The credits just say Hell Priest. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, their design's good. I don't. I don't know if I personally would say I like it better than the original, but I still I, I like the design. Like, I, obviously, I grew up with the original. I've seen my love for that. I mean, I have the freaking box tattooed on my chest, so obviously, I have a history. Hellraiser, but I mean that's right, really inconsequential. The box 
is the same box more or less. Uh, they get into it a little more with the uh, configuration and how you actually solve it in this movie, but it's the box. Um, but man, for the movie itself, I I got to side with Don on this. I found myself bored, and I was getting like upset at how bored I was with the story. I just felt like I I I don't care, and it's not because I know a big thing Venom with you is like when you dislike the characters, I didn't really dislike the characters. I, I didn't find them unlikable. I just found them boring, but that was probably just because the plot was boring. Now, if, if this story and these characters are more accurate to the actual hellbound heart novel novella, then thank goodness they made the changes to the original movie that they did because I oh, found fuck that off. story. I found that story way more interesting than this. I, what, you think the story of Frank Cotton was more interesting than this, really, than yes. Roland Boyd? Holy yep. shit! I think Frank. I think Frank as a character is more interesting than anything in this. And to me, that shows how you can make something intriguing and mysterious out of something very simple. Where this movie has a long, drawn-out story that I don't care about any step of the way. I'm just like, okay. It just wasn't interesting to me. I, to me, this is this is a movie for people that like Thirteen Ghosts more than Hellraiser. I I I just found it to be very dull and middle of the road. Is it a poorly made movie? No, absolutely not. Do I understand why people do like it more than me? Yes. It's not one of those movies where like I'm baffled why anyone would like it. It's not like to that level. But just for me personally, I I just found it pretty dull, and that's to me sometimes a worse indictment on a movie than when it's so bad you're like laughing at it or having when you're getting entertained even though it's not great i i just found it dull i even threw it on a second time today because i was like maybe maybe it was the maybe it was a side effect of being a real big fan of the original so it was the first time i'm watching this one so i had too much bias going on but i threw it on today and i was like finding myself just as I, I guess bored is the right word, but I just found the story dull. Like I, it was hard to pay attention to a second time around, and that could just be because I, you know, it's so close to when I first watched it. Obviously, you know, if I watch it a few months from now, maybe the distance will make make me think, oh, hey, I think a little different. But you know, from what I saw, I was just like, I, I'm. I, I I really felt like it didn't need to be a two hour movie. I, I don't exactly. Yeah, I don't see what there was about this story that they couldn't have cut 20, 30 minutes out. And once they had the setup, it's like, okay, move along because we're not really getting any, getting anything on the journey to the third act. Um, and it's, you know, we can get into more details on that in a bit, but yeah, I would just say to me, it was like a middle of the road. Movie and yeah, it had a lot of the pitfalls of just remakes in general, even though it's technically not a remake, but it, I don't know. I didn't. Uh, that's the problem. Is like I, I feel like a lot of like modern takes on things is they understand the window dressing aspects. They understand the checklist items, but what they fail to do is make an interesting story around it. And I found Frank and Julia's story uh, like they're kind of like you know forbidden tryst affair and all that went into that uh, more interesting. I I understand if you if you disagree. I mean that's just a disagreement. But to me that was. Interesting. Um, yeah, I don't know. I, uh, yeah, and the, you know the use of CGI always bugs me. And the, the 
the Leviathan stuff, the walls moving around. I mean, it was cool in concept, but it just looked like a freaking computer generator. Like it, that kind of stuff just takes me out of it when it's so abundantly clear that I'm just watching a computer screen shift around. It, like it doesn't look good to me. And you know, uh, Venom. I think it was you that brought up Terrifier. I'm assuming it was Terrifier too that you were bringing mm-hmm. up. A movie on that kind of budget, when they can do like practical effects like that, I'm like, this had to at least have twice that budget, and like you can't do more with your special. Look at the set design. What are you talking about? Most of the money went into the set design. What was the set design of Terrifier? An abandoned car- carnival? That's real hard oh. to find. But I found the practical effects more entertaining than anything. Of course, Terrifier is a gore fest. No shit. Of course, the practical effects are going to be more prominent. This movie is not a gore fest. It is not the nearly the level of gore that we got in the first two Hellraiser movies. That's something that, unfortunately, you just have to accept. But I, <laughs> it's funny how the one person who actually read the novella loves this movie, absolutely fucking adores it. And the two people who didn't read it and only grew up on the movie hate it. It just kind of yeah. speaks to the book readers versus the movie viewers a little bit. And I do solidly consider myself a movie viewer. Like I said, I, I haven't really been an avid reader in about 20, 25 years. But when I read, I loved it. And yeah, I'm I'm sorry that this is the movie I've been waiting 30 plus years for. I, you know, I mean, I, well, I, I, I'm assuming this sense. is the same. Makes sense. Like, since- I was going to uh-huh. say it makes sense because the movie felt 30 years long when I was watching Oh, fuck it. off, dude. <laughs> Jesus. Are you two just going to take turns shitting on me today? Because I'm throwing it right hey, back at you. I, this fucking what movie I get every episode. Great, all right? This fucking movie. Uh, yes. Okay. Is it slow? Yes. But I love my slow burns. And it's not like we have to go more than 10, 15 minutes in between set pieces. It's not like there's half hour stretches of the movie with just these kids. And even the long stretches with them, at least we're getting information. We're getting backstory on Roland Voigt when they go and talk to Serena. I love that. Just because we get it doesn't make it interesting, though. What's that? Just because we get that stuff doesn't make it all interesting. I understand. But, I mean, and and this kind of goes back to Mike's issues with uh, his boredom with the Evil Dead remake. This movie is very – has a lot of parallels with the Evil Dead remake. A lead dealing with a drug addiction is not able to get out of a situation for one reason or another. She's dragging all of her friends down with her. And, you know, famously, Mike's not the biggest fan of the Evil Dead remake either, whereas I – whereas to me, it's a 10 out of 10. So – I like drug stories. I like when people are broken. These are legitimately broken characters. These aren't douchebags and assholes like in other horror movies, you know, with the traditional horror hierarchy, as explained in Cabin in the Woods. But I found all of these characters likable, even even the one character who, you know, obviously turns out to be the backstabber. I thought he played his role well. He did exactly what he needed to do. And I'm glad that they didn't let him have a redemption moment at the end because he didn't deserve one so i don't know i i you know if the story didn't resonate with you that's fine but in my opinion this was a great fucking story the the fact that they went over all six configurations explained what they actually meant we get so much more here than we got in the originals this is why I look at the originals as it's all gore and cenobites. That's all it really is to me. The Frank story, yes, it's interesting. It is, but uh, 
I don't know. I, I guess I'm, I'm getting a little flustered because of how people are panning this movie. And it's like, I, what movie did we watch the same goddamn movie? At no point was I bored. I, I, just, I, I never once cringed. I never rolled my eyes. And you guys know how easily I get frustrated with horror movie characters. And it did not happen here. And I don't, you know. I don't, I don't know what else to say. I mean, I think most people are going to agree with you guys. Like I said, I've seen the reviews. I understand that I'm in the minority, but I'm dying on this hill. This fucking movie was just as good as the Candyman remake. Mm, not quite as good as the Invisible Man remake as far as the quality from the original to the remake. But goddamn, I, I honestly, as I'm watching this movie, I'm I'm thinking this is the resurgence that this franchise needs. And then I finish watching the movie and I go watch and read the reviews and everyone is panning it. And it's like, what the fuck? I don't understand what movie they watch. I mean, if you don't like movies about, you know, drug and alcohol addicted characters trying to get through their addictions and using the horror in the film as a metaphor for their addiction. I mean, there's a lot of allegory in this movie, a lot of allegory, a lot of homages too. Lots of homages to the, to the original, homages to, as I said, the Evil Dead remake. Um, I, I, I listed a couple of other movies in my notes. I'll, I'll find it here in a little bit, but yeah. And that final line from Hell Priest, you have chosen the lament configuration. I got fucking goosebumps, guys. This is someone who grew up with that novella, who grew up reading that story. I, you know, I'm sorry, but I unapologetically and vehemently disagree with you guys on this one. I, you know, it's not, not like it's the first time we've disagreed by any stretch, but like I vehemently disagree. I think this movie is spectacular. And when the original fucking Hellraiser music started playing, my nipples got hard. I was so fucking happy. I, 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 you know, I, we're just going to go back and forth, you know, separate opinions. What's that? When the original, when the original Hellraiser music, kicked on i perked up too because i was like oh maybe that movie's about to start oh, God this damn. One. <laughs> see like i said you didn't read the book you don't you don't know the true greatness of the hellbound heart you know the movie that clive barker made and that's fine again i'm not going to disparage people who don't read the books but try not to disparage as a movie viewer don't disparage the movie who the, the people who have read the books and I have a separate opinion on the film that differs from yours based on our history with it. I read the Hellbound I'm Heart. Disparaging you? No, no, I I'm understand. Just, I'm not disparaging anything, but I also would make the argument that I think we have ample examples in the horror genre where making changes to the book is actually beneficial to the movie and not absolutely. You not have 100% to percent of novels. No, no, a hundred percent of novels need to be changed for movies. I mean, don't forget, novels are like six hundred pages. That'd be like a five-hour movie if they made the entire novel. So, yes, every novel that's made into a movie has to go through some kind of change. I totally understand that. And I've, you know, I, I'm never going to be the one to say, oh, they changed this, so I hate it. No. If I don't like how it's presented in the film, I will voice that opinion and say, well, I didn't really like how they did it in the movie. I said it uh, – I, I don't think we actually reviewed The Green Knight – but I was very vocal about the fact that they changed the story, especially the ending, so drastically between the the original uh, epic poem and that film. So, you know, uh, and, but with this one, yes, they made changes still. There, there are things different in this adaptation that are not in the book that I still agreed with. I like I said, I understand if you don't find this story entertaining, 
that is totally fine. But I myself found it 100% riveting. I could have watched this movie longer. I, that, that's two movies this weekend that were either two hours or more that I loved every goddamn second of the film. I, I, I think this movie is an absolute goddamn triumph. And considering the fervor uh, that Jamie Clayton created by just by accepting this role – uh, and then to get the finished product, it's just a spit in the face and all of those, you know, pieces of shit who, you know, said, oh, well, why are you going to make Pinhead a girl? Well, first of all, I hate using the word Pinhead. If I say Pinhead, it comes out accidentally. It's Hellpriest. It's always Hellpriest. Even Clive Barker hates the name Pinhead. And if Clive Barker hates it, then I hate it, too. So, again... And, you know, with Clive Barker being an executive producer on this one and Doug Bradley giving a glowing review of this film, I don't know. I, I, I tend to question. I don't know. I, I, I just I don't want to make I don't want to well, make a statement that sounds personal, because, but I, I, I really I don't I mean, know. At the, at, at the least, I think all three of us agree that I mean, even me and Don, who are not high on the movie, really have no issues with the Cenobites. So, I mean, at least that's something. Yeah, but yeah, I mean, I'm not one of those, oh, at least that's something. No, 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 no. Yeah, well, you have, I mean, you I'm just looking opinion. at positives versus, you know, it, I, I think it's just a point of, like, not we're, we're not down on every aspect of the movie, even though just we find the movie to be lackluster, maybe Dawn even more severe than that. But, you know, just because you made it a point to say all the, you know, idiots that were coming down just on the fact of the casting I, I think that was fine I have, I have zero issue with that I think that was probably one of the better aspects if not the best aspect of this was the Cenobites and those performances those, those were really good I mean, and I'm willing I, to give it a rewatch if they fix the color grading on it I'm, and that's the other thing I needed to question because I mean, on my TV on beautiful 4K on Hulu, I had no problem seeing anything in the movie. Yes, the movie is dark. I absolutely agree with that. And I like the scenes where, you know, Hell Priest will be standing there. She'll say her line and then the light kind of moves away from her without her moving. Like, I actually love that effect. Um, I can I, I don't know. Um, I'd have to question your internet connection, things like that. You know, obviously, I, you know, again, your experience is your own. I'm not questioning that, but watching it on Hulu in beautiful 4K, I had no problem with it. You know, granted, I have a big 4K TV. I turn all my lights off. I try, I try to emulate the theater experience as much as I can when I'm home. I turn my phone off, all of it. But I, I just I, I was so surprised with this movie. I was fully expecting this movie to just be at basically what Mike and Dom think, just a lackluster cash grab that really didn't need to be made. And instead, this movie is suddenly in my top five for the year. Unapologetically, it is a fucking great movie if you are a reader. If the only thing you know about Hellraiser is the movies, then OK, I understand why you don't like it. I understand why you think it's boring because it's not, you know. It's not hell priest going around killing people every five minutes. Fine. I understand that. But the yeah, slower... but he never even did that in the original. He doesn't even show yeah, up until nearly an hour in. Was that. Yeah. 
He never even well, shows neither, up as Jamie. And neither, and same here. One hour and eight minutes before we get uh, Hell yeah. Priest in this movie. So this is what I'm that, – that was part of my original point about all the, you know, the, the BS about a transgender woman taking that role. It's like, well, I hope all those people are eating crow right now because even the original Doug uh, – the original pinhead Doug Bradley – said she did a stellar job. He used the word stellar. <laughs> so, and, and again, film? Was it based on the look? Because I thought that came out before the movie was released. No, no, no. He saw the movie. I mean, obviously he saw the movie early. He no, I, I'm saying he, that came out before the movie was released. Was he referring to her look, the stills that were released of her? Or I mean, he was... Uh, the here, they, I, I'll find the exact tweet. I have it here somewhere. But uh, you guys go ahead. And complain some more if you like. While I look for this tweet, <laughs> um, I'm trying to think like what else I can say at the moment. I mean, like I said, well, I'll say this: she the, did the fine one, to me. The, the the one thing for me that I, I really enjoyed, and uh, to you know bring this up just a little bit, I actually really enjoyed the way that this actually emit it brought the box into the forefront of the film and it made that the central plot line. You get the, the, the house at the very end where, okay, I mean, yeah, the, the fact that they try to leave and then they return five minutes later for no reason, but the fact that the house and the box connect and they actually make that a big issue. I actually really like that. And I thought that was actually really clever where it, it makes, you know, calling calling them through the box makes it a big deal. And it, that was the one thing that the, in, in the original, it was just a stroke of luck that, you know, Kirstie manages to do it. And that just kind of doesn't really, to me, to me, that was like one of the bit, the weak, the weak things is that it was just accidental. You know, they always say that you're supposed to be, you know, explorers into the, into the further regions of the universe as to how you uncover it. Like you managed to, you know, seek it out of your own free will and you managed to call them because they offer something that you need. And then Kirstie does it just by sheer happenstance. That's the one issue that I've always had with that one in one of the, the, the few drawbacks to the original. But this one here, I actually really like that they made it even more of a connection and they made the box even more of an important figure. Uh, I'll, I'll give it that. I, I did really like that aspect of it, and that, to me, makes the final half a lot more interesting. And they actually did that in this movie, too, where one of the victims really didn't open the box by any stretch. She was actually attacked with the box. And and then the Cenobites come and take her, and I'm thinking, well, wait a minute. <laughs> Why didn't you have that classic line from Hellraiser 2 where it's like, it's not hands that call us, but desire? That would have been awesome right there, because it's true. Nora did not open the box. She did not hold. She never even held the fucking box. She was attacked with the box. And then, which, you know, if you haven't seen the film, what I'm saying probably doesn't make a whole lot of sense. But if you have, you know exactly what I'm talking about. Yeah. So I did kind of, I did kind of question that. Like, why did they take Nora? But, you know, again. Well, I was going to ask you because mm -hmm. I, I, I noticed that difference in this one where in the original, or at least the first two, they, and I thought maybe that was like a, a difference in the novella, and maybe that's why it was different in this one, because an aspect I really liked of the first two um, was the whole kind of like uh, deal you make when you, you when you purposely open the box to summon, because it seems like, you know, the people knew Frank and whoever else kind of knew what they were doing 
they might not know to the extent of what's going to happen, but they, you know they're see they're basically thrill seekers that have done it and seen it all, and they hear about this thing that can take it to new heights of pleasure and pain and all that, and they are actively seeking out something. Now, obviously, it's more than they bargained for, which is what sets up the story. But in this one, it seemed like not just uh, any connection to the box, uh, purposeful or not, if you're in possession of it and it goes to like the next configuration you're going to get. Well, that doesn't make sense because Kirsty, Kirsty didn't open it on purpose by any stretch of the imagination. Well, no, I know, but that's why they, they kind of turned on her at the end and said, Oh no, but we'd like want to play with you too, which well, I think at the end of the day, they are demons. They were of course. Her. <laughs> but they were, but it was also like a, they kind of set up a deal and a bargain and they went back on that, which to me, okay. But they never really go into that in the originals. They, they, they don't go into any kind of deals or bargains. Hell, they don't even imply that Frank or anyone else that opened the box knows what's coming. You know, they're just, they're, as you said, they're looking for new realms of experience. They don't know what's going to happen. Um, this one, obviously, oh, Roland Voigt yeah. did his research. He knew exactly what he was getting, and he knew exactly what he was going to ask for when it was all said and done. So I, I just feel like this that Roland Voigt is a much more purposeful villain than Frank Cotton. Frank Cotton's just a scumbag, ultimately. He's just a scumbag. And Roland Voigt is also an evil scumbag, don't get me wrong, but he's an intelligent evil scumbag, and I appreciate that. I mean, for fuck's sake, his mansion is a box. He literally made his mansion into a lament configuration without the hokiness of uh, the, the space station from, uh, what do you call it, uh, Hellraiser Bloodlines, that, that atrocity of a final scene. Whereas this one, you know, they don't lean on it too much. Like they don't, it's not like the house literally like transforms into the different configurations, anything like that. No, it, it basically the house looks like in its lament configuration. Which I, I just absolutely and I love the fact that they explained all that, that they actually because I mean, think about it. When, when people said the lament configuration and, and I'm talking specifically to you two guys who never read the books, what did you think they meant by that, by the lament configuration? Did, you guys probably thought that was just the name of the box. Well, isn't that the name of the box? No, it is the name of the box when it's in that form, when it's in the square form. That is the lament configuration. There's also the liminal configuration, the Leviathan configuration, which was all explained in the notebook that we saw in the movie. So, and, and that's fine. Again, I'm not, you know, I'm not trying to be an elitist or holier than thou because you thought the name of the box was the Lament configuration. It's the Le Marchand uh, box, I think, is the actual name of it. I, I forget. Like I said, it's been about 30 years since I read The Hellbound Heart. But yeah. I think it was something like the Lamar Sean something, something. Um, but yeah, uh, just the fact that yeah, they go into I mean, that, that they explained that from the novel. Fucking spectacular. Absolutely love it. That's why I got goosebumps when she had that final line, when the hell priest says her final line. I, I, I'm not exaggerating, folks. I had fucking goosebumps because I because I love that moment in the novel as well. So, you know, again, different experience, different uh uh, histories with this uh, property for the three of us. So I think that kind of speaks to how we, the three of us reacted to this new interpretation. Nothing bad or, you know, nothing good or bad about that. You know, um, I'm just saying that I, I feel like it's going to be across the board. People that have not read the novella are going to, are, are going to think this movie is dull. 
And I think people that are big fans of the Hellbound Heart, all chapters of the Hellbound Heart, because not all chapters have to do with Hell Priest, mind you. But people who are, you know, big fans of the entire novella, I think are going to dig this movie. Yeah, it's not as gory as you'd want it to be. But again, it's on Hulu. Did we expect a gore fest on Hulu? I don't think so. But uh, I don't know. What are, For, okay, what would, what would you assume someone who read The Hellbound Heart and found that story dull, what do you think they would think of the movie? I would have to speak to that person. I, I would legitimately have to speak to that person. Like, I, I'm not I'm not going to... I'm not going to sit here and voice an opinion on a fictional person that, you know, because, because somebody out there is going to be that person and I, I'm going to end up offending them. So I, I have no opinion of that person, but I would like to have a conversation with them. That's all. I want to know why, they, if they love the hellbound heart, what did they hate about this movie? That, that would no, be I'm my main saying, What if they, what if they didn't like the hellbound heart or thought the story? Cause if they didn't like the Hellbound Heart, why the fuck are they watching the movie? <laughs> well, curiosity, interesting. Oh, which is fine, of course. But I'm, I, you know, I'm not going to get into an in-depth conversation on the novella versus the movie with someone who hated the novella. And I mean, because what's the point? They're they're probably going to hate the movie. What's the likelihood that someone hates a book and loves the movie? I'm, I'm not going to say it's impossible, uh, I mean, but I got to say it's a rarity. I, I know there's people that find like the American Psycho book to be kind of a uh, over an indulgent drag of a read, but love the movie. I mean, there's uh, examples, I guess. Uh, you can also say Jaws. I mean, Jaws isn't that great of a novel. Oh wow! I disagree with both of you. I, <laughs> I think the Jaws novel not better than the book. I will fully admit that that movie is spectacular. I mean, well, I mean, I'm not, I'm not speaking personally. I'm not speaking what I personally think, but I have heard people just say American Psycho is a tough read just because of the style that Brett. I think I, I'm, I'm in the opposite camp. I'm not a fan of the movie, and I love that book. I absolutely love all the. All the all the inner monologue. There's so much more of it in the book than there is in the movie. Uh, yeah, there is, <laughs> and I love that. I mean, hey, and again, it, it, it's up to the type of reader that you are. Again, I'm not going to disparage anyone one way or I, I the know, other. I, I, you know. I agree with you. I'm not. I'm not giving my opinion one way or the other. I'm just saying I have heard you did. I was just giving an example of a case where some people think the movie does a better job of telling the story than a I understand that. I know people that like Texas Chainsaw Remake better than the original. I don't associate with those people, and I'm never yeah, going to... Yeah, well, shut up. Anyway, <laughs> that's a conversation for another show. Uh, <laughs> um, but yeah, I, just again, this is going to be a divisive movie, I think. I, I think that this movie is for the readers. It is for the people who read it and have been waiting for a at least somewhat faithful adaptation of it. This is the movie we've been waiting for. If you don't how, like it, how fine. early did you st- how early did you start looking at uh, reaction to it? Because I swear that Friday as soon as the, the movie came ended- out, it's it okay. Because when it came out Friday, it seemed like initial reaction was like positive, and then the tide started turning over the weekend as like the masses started seeing it. But I, I no, I saw it right away. Like literally Friday. I mean, I literally watched it. My work shift ended Friday at five. I started it at five thirty. And as soon as it was done, I went online to watch the trailer and to read reviews. And yeah, about 75% of the reviews I saw were negative. There were so some positive ones out there, definitely. But the majority were solidly negative. They, of, the majority of, of them were middle this, of the What's that? Yeah, I, I would say after at the conclusion of the weekend, the, 
I would say the majority are saying middle of the road. But uh, no, I was going to ask you out of since this was a weekend where tons of stuff released, is this your favorite movie of the weekend? It is not. Yeah. Assuming you've seen everything. Like, it is everything. not. Oh, Think about really? that. I am I am praising this movie and saying that it's now in my top 10. It is not my favorite movie of the weekend. That's a conversation oh, for another show, unfortunately. I would have figured it would be just because of <laughs> your glowing endorsement. But I know. Isn't it crazy? Like, I, I actually gave another movie a higher score than this one this weekend. But since we're not reviewing it, it I'm not going to talk theater? about it. Eh, we'll leave it alone. We'll leave it alone for now. If if we want to review it in the future, we'll review it. But you all know what I'm talking about, so stop with your silly questions. Was it was it two plus hours? <laughs> of course. Uh, so was this one. Okay. <laughs> what was this? Two hours one minute? I think it's listed. Something like that. Yeah, it, it's solidly two hours. It's just under with the if you don't watch credits and and there's no post credit scene so there's no need to watch the credits here i watch the credits regardless i am a credits viewer i have been my entire life i've always been interested in the people that make the movie it's not like i memorize every single name by any stretch but after a while you, you know, start to see you know watching credits when you're on vod is there like a setting that where it won't start auto playing something else because i've had situations where like i want to watch the credits just to see if there's I don't. Back, do I, mean, I know you can manually do it, but I was wondering if there's a setting that will just auto no, turn off like auto playing. Oh yeah, yeah. There's an auto play feature. Absolutely, uh, all streaming apps should have an auto play feature because I have it turned off on Netflix and YouTube. So, so your credits will just roll completely until it tries to put something else. On. No, it, it, on Hulu because I haven't changed the setting, it will try to. But all you got to do is hit the okay. back button, and then that that and then it'll play the whole movie. The whole credits and everything. But yeah, no post credits on this one, thankfully. Ah, I don't know. What else can we get into that's spoiler free? Um, a score. Do you think, uh, I thought the score was really good. Uh, go ahead. Uh, do you, are you satisfied with the world building in this that you would have welcomed like a sequel? Yes. I would very much like to see a sequel in this universe. 100%. I mean, didn't they set up a sequel with the final scene? I think they I did. Mean, I, no, I thought so I too. Yeah. I mean, because like it's you know trying to do because that's the great thing about our antagonist, our human antagonist in this one. He's the perfect mix of Frank Cotton and Doctor Chenard. You know, our, our two antagonists from Hellraiser one and two. In fact, he does a lot of the same things that both characters do in this one. Uh, or that did in their respective movies. You know, a lot of the same stuff. Obviously, like with Doctor Chenard getting other people to open the boxes. That's what Roland Void is doing. Um, obviously Dr. Chenard knew what he was getting into. Same with Roland Voigt. He knew what he was getting into. Whereas I don't believe Frank Cotton knew what he was getting into. You know, I'm, you know, I'm sure he knew something, um, was going to happen, something that was going to heighten his senses and, you know, be a, a sensation that he's never felt before. I understand that, but I'm pretty sure if he knew he was basically selling his soul to open that box, I'm pretty sure most people wouldn't have done it. Whereas Roland and Dr. Chenard willingly did it. And I like that. I like that about it. I don't, I don't like just the confused thug because to me, Frank is a confused thug. Yeah. I understand that when, once he comes back, he's got that knowledge, he's got that experience, you know, he's a completely different person, but I'm, you know, I'm talking about, you know, pre death Frank Cotton, you know, which we basically don't even really see in the, in the original film, except in a flashback. But yeah, to me, Frank Cotton is not a compelling human antagonist compared to Roland Voigt. That's just me. Uh, 
Yeah, I'm the opposite. I mean, because what did Frank Cotton want? All he wanted was life. He wanted Roland Voigt wanted a hell of a lot more. And, you know, the, the scope of what he wanted just makes this movie bigger to me. You know what I mean? Uh, the original Hellraiser feels like an isolated story that happens just in the Kirstie, in Kirstie's house, in the Cotton house, excuse me. Whereas this, you know, yeah, a majority of it takes place in the mansion, but we've got scenes in city parks and, you know, mental facilities, hospitals. You know, the scope of this one is just so much grander. It it, it kind of matches the scope of Halloween, uh, excuse me, of Hellraiser 3 a little bit more as much as I'm not a fan of Hellraiser 3. Because uh, I, I feel like Pinhead turned into Freddy Krueger uh, for Hellraiser 3. But, you know, that's, a, again, story for another podcast. So, yeah, I mean. <laughs> yep um all right i think that is good for general thoughts all right uh, i'll try to get through this walkthrough as quick as possible because i know you know don and mike are ready to pull their hair out what little hair they have left so i'll try to be as quick as possible despite my love of the film i could sit here and give you a two-hour walkthrough because i fucking loved it but i won't do that all right our movie opens in serbia of course it does and we see uh, Serena, who we later find out is uh, an assistant to Roland Voigt. We see her buying a package from uh, some a nameless merchant. I will say I like the merchant from the original movie better. Uh, you know, what's your pleasure, sir? That, that dude has a way creepier vibe, whereas this guy really just seemed like a shady art dealer more than anything. So, you know, it kind of grounds it in reality a little bit more as opposed to the merchant from the original two movies. But uh, again... I'll save that for when we review Hellraiser 1 and 2. Um, so we see her buy the box. Well, we don't, obviously, she, she, she picks up a package from the salesman. She, she opens the package, but obviously, you know, it, we don't see it on camera, though we all know what movie we're watching, so we know it's in that box. Uh, later, we're introduced to, I forgot her name, Riley? Yeah, Riley. Okay, so we're introduced to Riley. She is a young girl, maybe in her mid-20s, who's, uh, she's drug and alcohol addicted. She obviously has been in some AA programs. She's currently dating a guy named Trevor that she met in AA. When her brother meets, her brother Matt, who she is living with, when he meets Trevor, he instantly disapproves, you know, doesn't like the fact that she's dating someone from AA and that, you know, they could both fall off the wagon together, whatever the case may be. And as it turns out, Matt is fairly correct about that. Um, because that evening after Riley and Matt have yet another argument, she goes to Trevor's house and she starts talking about, you know, wanting to move out and, you know, not being able to. And that's when Trevor kind of mentions an idea that he has. And the idea that he has is uh, years ago, he used to be a delivery driver. He used to deliver um, like the big cargo crates, you know, the, the big ones that uh, semi trucks will pull down the highway. And he used to deliver those to a storage facility in the city, whatever city this is they're in. I don't think they ever, do they ever tell us what city we're in? I don't think they do. Um, but Basically, uh, Trevor remembers that one of the shipping containers that he dropped off the last time never got picked up. It's basically still at the storage unit. And because he was the delivery driver for the storage unit, he still remembers the security code to get out uh, to get in to the um, to the storage unit. Uh, let's see. Riley begrudgingly agrees and says, OK, let's do it. Um, they end up going to the storage unit. 
opening it up, breaking in, obviously, and there is the shipping container. They're able to break into the shipping container, and inside of the shipping container is a safe, just a big black safe. So obviously they get excited right away, thinking that there's, you know, stuff worth a lot of money in there. They eventually get the safe open after a lot of trying with a sledgehammer, and they find inside of the safe is just the box, the wooden box that we saw Serena purchase at the beginning of the film. And she opens it, she pulls out the box and, you know, basically looks at it. Not really sure. Trevor is obviously upset. He's visibly upset that the, that there's not money or, you know, jewelry or gold or whatever bonds. I think he mentions in the box. So, you know, he's obviously upset. Um, Riley, for some reason seems to like the box, you know, it's kind of cool, decorative looking. We all know what those boxes look like. So, uh, basically Trevor, uh, basically says, well, you can have it then you can, you can have, you know, cause I don't think we're going to be able to get much for this anyway, if anything. So just go ahead and keep it. She ends up keeping it going home after having an evening of sex and alcohol with Trevor. She ends up going home drunk, uh, visibly drunk. Her brother gets upset with her. They get into an argument. He ends up kicking her out of his apartment she packs up, she leaves, she goes to her car, and while she's in the car, she remembers that she has the box with her. She pulls it out, and she starts playing with it a little bit, and she twists one of the parts of it and realizes that it's a puzzle box, that there's uh, potentially something in here. And when she opens it, or when she changes the configuration the first time, a little knife pops out. Uh, I did forget to mention uh, we we do get an opening scene where we see a role where we're introduced to Roland Voigt. Uh, he's having a party. One of the party members finds his uh, the box, which is currently in the liminal configuration, which is sensation. And he starts playing with it. Roland tells him, go ahead, start playing with it. He plays with it. He solves it. Um, we don't get to see any Cenobites in this one, but we do see the chains come out and, you know, pull our hapless victim into a void of some kind. And that that's just like a, a quickie, you know, a, an additional cold open to our original cold open. Okay. okay so. That's what I was going to ask, because mm-hmm. you're the one to ask, because you've read the novel. So in the novel, when it comes to the box, is it, it does there have to be any motivation behind why you're in possession or open the box or is it just like you could stumble upon it mess around with it and you're getting taken by the Cenobites regardless because I felt like in this one there was a lot more of like other people kind of manipulating people into like using it and where that's one of my preferences to the original was like it seemed like there was more purpose usually behind it or actually the first two I mean because the first two, I know they're separate movies, but it kind of follows like the same. So wait a minute. I'm sorry. I, I'm misunderstanding. Do you, did you say that you thought there was more purpose to the agreement in the original movies? Or, or the new one? In the original, Frank opened it with intention. Like he was calling to them to come. No, to I don't think he was. I don't. I personally don't think Frank knew. Like I said, Frank knew that he had a box that was going to offer him something that he's never experienced before. Yeah, I don't think he actually perfect. knew that it called Cenobites. That's what I'm yeah, saying. That's Roland Voigt but knew. He, but he. Uh-huh. But, but I'm not talking about Roland. Roland. Right, right. Had, You're talking about Roland Frank. Had some type of purpose. Yeah, but Frank 
No, did he did he have like a manual that said, "Hey, these Cenobites will come and take you off"? No, absolutely not. But absolutely, but he not. was seeking. He was seeking something. He was seeking experience. Yes. Yeah, experience. But, but he that, wasn't that, seeking that, hell. He wasn't seeking an agreement with demonic entities. Is is what I'm saying. Like I said, he was he was searching experience, just like Pinhead says. They are purveyors well, they came of to give experience. Them the experience. Exactly. But, it, but he did it not knowing what experience. So it was like he was willing to play with Dane. Like he was willing. Exactly. To yes. He was willing to take the chance. Way. Yes. Right. Where but it he, seemed like in this movie, there was a lot of circumstances where other people, like when they're in possession of it, it cuts them or they're being forced to do it, obviously because of the beginning mm-hmm. of, you know, once the story unfolds. So I, I didn't like that element as much, but I was at, that's why I was asking is, is the novel like that? too where like other people can be manipulated into using it and then they meet their demise regardless absolutely because they happen to do it right right okay. well i mean that that kind of holds true even to the original movies i mean don't forget all of the patients in hellraiser 2 that chenard ended up getting killed they didn't know what they were doing he just handed them boxes and through their insanity and fidgety hands they were able to solve the boxes Hence why Chenard got his wish at the end of that movie. So, I mean, this this storyline follows oh, Hellraiser 2 so closely. I'm shocked that people are this hateful towards this one because Roland Voigt is Dr. Chenard. Like, I don't understand the difference. In, in fact, Roland Voigt is smarter than Chenard because Chenard didn't know what those boxes were until he had people open them, until he gave them, you know, to that first crazy guy that sliced himself up. You know what I mean? Roland Voigt knew exactly. I mean, he had the he had the books with all the illustrations to literally word for word. When someone is marked by the box, they they come and they are taken. So, yes, I, I'm, I'm going to say Roland Voigt was much more cognizant of what he was doing in here than any of the previous Hellraiser uh, human antagonists. I mean, like I said, he had a whole manual. <laughs> We've never seen a manual in any of the movies before. At least not to my knowledge. Like I said, Hellraiser 3 through um, Judgment, I've only all seen those once. So your your opinion is going to be a, uh, a lot more valid on those movies. You've probably seen them more and, and more recently than I have. So, All right. So uh, where were we? Um, oh, the park. Okay. So after after they steal, after Trevor and Riley steal the box, they go back to Matt's house or not they, Riley goes back to Matt's house. She has a big old argument with Matt and Matt kicks her out. She ends up going to the car. She starts playing with the box. And then she, she accidentally finds like a a pill, a container of pills in her bag. She ends up taking three of the pills that are in there and instantly basically just starts, um, you know, getting a little slow. She ends up getting out of the car and going to one of those little merry-go-rounds that we were just talking about on Friday the 13th, the series. And, um, Basically, you know, she's just kind of fading in and out of consciousness because of the drugs, I'm assuming. And, you know, that's when she starts having the hallucinations. That's when we first see Hell Priest's um, kind of shadow in the background. We don't actually see him, her, whatever. Um, it's just, uh, you know, a, a silhouette, like I said. It Obviously, it scares her. It freaks her out. Uh, she ends up kind of passing out mildly from the drugs, her brother Matt ends up coming out and finding her. Luckily, Riley didn't run away too far from where they live. I guess there's a park right there. 
Matt finds her passed out on the merry-go-round and just, uh, you know, tries to basically tries to uh, wake her up. And then he he sees the box next to her and he grabs it. And of course, he cuts himself. And just like the just like our friend Joey from the uh, the earlier cold open, uh, once someone is cut by the little blade that comes out of the box, they have now been marked by the Cenobites and will be taken. So what happens after Mark gets his hand cut, he ends up going into a public restroom, telling Riley to wait outside for him while he rinses off his hand. While he's in the bathroom, we see the box start to change shape. It goes from the you know traditional square shape, the lament configuration that we all know, and then it transforms to the second configuration, which is lore or knowledge um it's hard to kind of say what that shape is the shape is kind of an oddball shape almost almost like a i don't know an imbalanced blob (laughs) i know what i'm saying i know no one else does (laughs) anyway uh we see the box transform into its second configuration on its own uh the blade retracts back into the box and then we see, you know, the the traditional things that we remember from the original Hellraiser. We see the walls separate, you know, we see the lightning and cobwebs and everything else in the new hallways that are created, very much like the labyrinth from Hellraiser 2. And uh, Matt is attacked. Unfortunately, we don't see a Cenobite in this scene. Um, Matt is taken off screen. Uh, I, I think we do see a chain kind of yank, yank him out, but that's about it. And uh, when Riley hears Matt screaming, she runs into the bathroom and he's gone. He's nowhere to be found. Uh, The only clue that he was even in there is the little bit of blood that's in the sink from where he cut his hand. She calls the police. The police aren't able to do anything because unfortunately, because she was high on drugs at the time, they don't necessarily believe everything she says. Um, Matt's uh, boyfriend, I forgot to mention, Matt is gay. Not that it matters in the story, in the, the grand scheme of the movie, but uh, Matt's boyfriend, uh, what's that, Colin. Um, what was my point here? I totally forgot. I'm sorry, folks. Um, oh, right. Colin uh, basically is mad at Riley because Riley doesn't remember. The cops don't necessarily believe her story because, you know, they check her out medically and they can tell that she's on some kind of drugs. Uh, Colin, uh, as I said, Trevor's boyfriend is very upset with her. She ends up uh, again, leaving the apartment in a huff, going back to Trevor's and in her infinite wisdom, her brother disappears. And what does she do? She goes and gets laid. Yep. She goes to Trevor's house and just jumps right on his dick. As soon as she walks through the door, it's kind of an interesting uh, reaction to your brother going missing, but whatever. Again, she's a drug addict. Uh, I'm not going to question her decisions because there's no rhyme or reason to a drug addict's decisions. So, you know, I'll allow it. Uh, While she's having sex with Trevor, she does get an image of one of the Cenobites. I believe it's the gasp, the black one. Um, Basically, giving her a jump scare. She falls on the floor. She starts freaking out as to why she's having these hallucinations. Uh, She wants to know what the box is. Trevor doesn't know what the box is or who owns it, but they eventually do find out whose name is on the lease for the storage unit that the shipping container was kept in. And as it turns out, it's Serena, our friend from the cold open, the, the woman who originally bought the box and the woman who sends Joey to his demise in the follow-up cold open when he uh, solves the puzzle box as well. 
they go to visit Serena. She's she's in a hospital. Um, she has I, 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 she doesn't specifically say she has lung cancer, but it, it, she talks about her lungs are deteriorating and she's dying, you know, as we speak, blah, blah, blah. So she's obviously got some kind of, uh, you know, bad condition. And. Basically, Riley starts asking her questions about the shipping container, about the storage unit, and then about the box itself. And Serena, actually, before Riley even mentions the box, Serena mentions it. And she's like, you found the box, didn't you? You don't know what you're doing. Leave it alone. At one point, Riley actually pulls the box out. And at this point, like I said, it's in its second configuration. And... Basically, Serena grabs it and tries to take it back from her, basically saying, I'm, I'm going to I'm going to reset the box and I'm going to save your ass. Um, Riley instantly tries to take the box back from Serena. A struggle ensues. At one point, they each grab one end of the box, which, like I said, is not in a box shape at this point. And they both accidentally twist and lock it into place, which, of course, solves the puzzle. And then it goes on to its next configuration. But before that, a blade does stick out, as always. It seems like every time the, the, the box is solved, the blade will pop out. Anybody's blood who gets on the box is instantly marked and they will be taken. So basically, we see a scene after this where Serena is taken to the medical bay to kind of deal with the cut on her hand. And she's left alone in the medical bay for a minute. And then literally, as soon as the doctors leave the room, we see the traditional walls breaking apart, exposing, you know, the, the nether realm, if you will, the, the labyrinth. And uh, we see uh, we see the gasp and we see um, what's the name of the Asian one? No, she's the gasp. God damn it. Uh, the weeper, right. The weeper is the black one. I'm sorry. The weeper is the, the black one. The gasp is the Asian girl. The asphyx is the one that's cut. Co- its face is covered with like part of its own skin. So you can't really see its skin and you can hear it breathing. It's got like that Darth Vader breathing thing. So I love the name, the asphyx. I think that's great. Um, there's a couple of others, uh, throughout one called the mother, one called the mask, but we only see them very, very briefly. Um, obviously, our main four are going to be the Hell Priest, the Chatterer, the Weeper, and uh, the Gasp. Uh, the Asphyx, the Mask, and the Mother, like I said, we only see them once or twice throughout the film, and really more towards the end of the film than anything else. Um, so like I said, we see uh, the Weeper and the Gasp basically attack Serena. I forget exactly what they did to her. I don't know if it was off screen or not, but... Um, Oh, right. It was off screen because uh, I will say that the Asphyx has a great line on in this scene where she basically pulls one of the pins out of the eye of the Weeper, sticks it in Serena's mouth and just says as creepy as she possibly can, save your breath for screaming. Unfortunately, the woman has a very thick accent, so I didn't catch that line the first on the first delivery. I actually had to rewind it and turn the subtitles on. But once I realized what she was saying, I thought it was pretty cool as hell. Um, And then that's pretty much the end of Serena. We don't see her again. After this, um, Trevor, basically the next morning, Trevor tells Riley that Serena is now missing that she is now the second person to get cut by this box and go completely missing. No one, no one knows what's going on. So at this point, Riley understands that there is definitely something going on. 
while Riley was visiting Serena, Serena did kind of give up a little information about Roland Voigt and the fact that he successfully completed the box and he got his wish. And then, you know, we basically never saw him again. Um, and let me explain the whole wish thing. I actually haven't even gotten into that concept yet. Basically, um, the box has six configurations, which I already listed. I'll list them again later. And once the owner of the box sacrifices six different people, one for each configuration, that person can get an audience with God. And of course, in this world, God is, of course, Leviathan. We, we saw him in in Hellraiser 2, basically the same construct, same shape. You know, once we see Leviathan at the end of this film, uh, very similar to what we see in Hellraiser 2. And so basically when you when you finish the six sacrifices, you get to make a wish. And the wish is basically one of the six configurations. Once again, those are lament, which equals life. If you pick the lament configuration, uh, it means that you're going to live a normal life afterwards. If you pick the lore configuration, that equals knowledge. So obviously, um, the gods will give you knowledge that no human has. Um, Labyrinth is um, live, is the, is the live um, configuration. I'm not 100% sure what that one is, because lament equals life and laudorant equals live. So I'm not sure the difference there liminal equals sensation and then the uh, oh and then lazarus equals resurrection obviously a reference to the bible's lazarus who died and came back uh at the hands of jesus or jesus brought him back i should say not that jesus killed him <laughs> and then the final configuration of course is leviathan which equals power so basically when you complete the series of six sacrifices you are able to ask for one of those things life knowledge sensation resurrection power or or live, live, whatever it is. And so that's pretty much the concept of this one. I absolutely love it because they touch on that barely. They barely touch on it in Hellraiser 2 with Dr. Chenard, because obviously Dr. Chenard is after something. We know he's after something. He even has that great line early in the movie, we have to see, we have to know. So obviously Dr. Chenard is seeking knowledge, uh, which would be the lore configuration. So even though they don't really touch on it too much in Hellraiser 2, we kind of see the blueprints of this movie in Hellraiser 2, and I do appreciate that. Um, we get a nice homage of Frank, of the original Frank Cotton when we see Matt. Um, this is post-death. Uh, Riley has a hallucination that he sees her brother, and her brother is basically asking her to bring, you know, bring me back, bring me back. Uh, she goes to hug him. And then we get that shining transition where, you know, it goes from Matt to a skinless version of Matt, very much like Frank Cotton. So I appreciate that. Uh, we also do get an homage to the to the vendors, uh, the original vendors line of what's your pleasure. Sir? But in this movie, it's what's your pleasure, ma'am. And it's not the vendor asking. It's actually Trevor asking Nora what drink she would like. But he even says it like the guy in the original what's your pleasure ma'am and so I, I thought that was a nice little homage i already kind of talked about the evil dead kind of similarities with our lead being drug drug addled and maybe not able to control all her decisions and everything else and being trapped blah 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 so anyway at this point um Riley decides to go to Roland Voigt's house. And when we get to Roland Voigt's house, um, she, it's a beautiful mansion that's a perfect square for some reason. But when she gets into the house, she starts hitting these random switches. 
And when she hits one switch, basically this border pops up and completely confines the whole house. And that's when the house looks like a fucking, um, a box, you know, a configuration box. And it looks like the lament configuration. It's the perfect square. Uh, I just thought that was just beautiful set design. Like I said, they completely ruined it in uh, Hellraiser bloodlines with the space station, but I feel like this made up for it. So yeah, good work there. Um, while she's there, that's when she finds um, Roland Voigt's book on the box And that's when we see all the text written about all the different configuration stages, um, the corresponding shapes, um, you know, what the box should look like when it gets to that stage, that particular configuration. Um, And and it also goes over the history, talks about how, you know, everything that I basically went over, that once you make six sacrifices, you get an audience with Leviathan and you can make a wish of one of the six, you know, configurations, blah, 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 blah. Um, while they're in the house or while she's in the house, I should say by herself, she starts hearing things. And then, uh, basically all her friends show up, Trevor, Colin, and Nora, who is basically a friend of Colin and Matt's, um, from one of the earlier scenes. They're uh, finally all together. And at this point, right when they show up, um, they start, you know, trying to find lights. So, you know, um, Nora ends up finding the switchboard under the bar. She starts hitting switches, turning lights on in the house. But then a secret door opens after hitting one of the switches. She goes into that secret door, finds that there's a secret tunnel leading all through the house. So she's basically traversing those tunnels. At one point, the door closes behind her and she's trapped in the you know in in the secret wall the tunnel whatever you want to go with and while she's in there she's attacked by someone um we only see them by silhouette but we assume that it's a cenobite because we can hear the machine parts moving and we can actually see like in the shadow it doesn't have a totally humanoid shape like it doesn't have a basic humanoid shape but there's something protruding from it for some reason uh and just a few minutes after this we she is attacked from behind Nora. That is while she's trapped in the walls, she's attacked from behind and she's attacked with the configuration box with the box itself. The box has the blade already sticking out of it. And basically he, uh, or this person attacks Nora with the box stabs her in the back with the blade part of the box. So now Nora has been marked. This is what I was talking about in the spoiler free section that, it didn't make sense that the Cenobites took Nora after not taking our, you know, deaf and mute girl from Hellraiser 2, but, you know, new franchise, so I'll allow it. And and then after Nora, after Riley and these guys try to help Nora out of the house, we see the image of Roland Voigt for the first time since the cold open. So Roland Voigt is still alive, but there's very obviously something wrong with them. They still haven't shown us full on, but we can hear the machine parts moving when they show his face. So there's very obviously something wrong with him. Um, And then they get out of the house uh, the first time and Nora, like I said, she's bleeding. Her vision starts going blurry, which is common with everyone who's marked by the box right before they're attacked by the Cenobites. They get dizzy. Their vision gets blurry, blah, blah, blah. 
And I actually like this scene. Basically, what they do is Nora is in the back of a van as they're driving away. And what happens is she's staring at the back of the van, you know, the double doors at the back. And what happens is they start distancing themselves from her. Like it almost seems like the van itself is elongating. So when when the back doors of the van are like 10 to 12 feet away from her, she turns around and everybody else, everybody that's in the van is like 20 feet away from her. They're like way up front. Suddenly they disappear into the darkness and the back of the van disappears into the darkness. And she is now in the labyrinth. She's in the tunnel. And this is where she has her first interaction with and this is where we see um, where we see Hell Priest in all her glory for the first time. We get to hear that spectacular voice. Yes, I fucking loved her voice. Her voice is exactly what I pictured when I read the Hellbound Heart. I forget the exact description, but in in the Hellbound Heart, they describe Hell Priest as a vaguely human uh, form that looks like it's been mutilated to the point where you can't tell if it's male or female. It's basically an androgynous demon. So this interpretation of uh, Hell Priest just makes so much more sense uh, to the people who've been reading this novel for however many years. So like I said, uh, we see Hell Priest appear for the first time. She does her fancy thing with the chains. Uh, she grabs Nora talks about, you know, she starts talking her cryptic stuff about God when Nora basically is, you know, yelling, help me God. And, you know, Hell Priest has this great conversation with her about what would you wish for? If if I were God, what would you wish for? And, you know, she's basically just screaming because she's floating in midair uh, with like, what, five or six of those chain hooks holding her up, basically. And then finally, Hell Priest says one more little cryptic line about her pain and how the life that Nora wants to lead is boring. Uh, there's no sensation to it, but that this. And we also get a really cool shot where uh, Hell Priest actually pulls out one of the pins out of her head. By the way, kudos to the, to the design team for actually making these pins. Yeah, in the first two movies, if you look very closely, those are nails that are in Doug Bradley's head. Those are not pins. So, you know, where the name Pinhead came from is beyond me. But I kind of like this, the fact that they're actually legitimate pins. You can see the balls at the end of them very clearly. They're shiny. And, you know, even though, you know, obviously Clive Barker hates the name Pinhead, I kind of like the fact that they made him pins in this one. I thought it was kind of a cool uh, little homage, if you will. Uh, let's see. So basically at this point, as um, Nora is chained up floating in midair, the chatterer walks in. And yes, my friends, the chatterer is my favorite Cenobite of all time. Absolutely adored him in the first two films and was so happy to see the chatterer make a return in this one. You know, only the hell priest and the chatterer make returns, you know, from the original uh, you know, line of Cenobites, if you will. So it was very cool to see the chatter and we basically see the chatter walk up to Nora and basically just peel all her skin off in one fail swoop. He puts her hand, he puts his hands on her face on either side of her head and just literally just skins her in one pull at the exact same time in the real world in the van. Um, Riley looks in the rearview mirror, sees Hell Priest and Nora up on the chains 
And then as soon as she turns around, literally just a blood splat is in the back of the van. Nora's body's gone, her skin, her body, everything's gone. All that's left is just a blood stain in the back of the van. When that happens, it scares Trevor, who is driving. And of course, he gets into another avoidable horror movie car accident. The van is now out of commission. They're not able to get out. Uh, At this point, they decide... Fuck it. Let's go back to the house and finish this. The only way that we're going to escape this is to just finish this whole thing. So Riley grabs the box out of the van, which is now kind of elongated. It's it's now in what? It's like fourth configuration, I believe, which is liminal, which means sensation. So she ends up going back to the house and basically once they're back inside the house, the Cenobites kind of follow them through. Uh, we get a scene where the chatterer kind of traps them behind the opening, the gate, the front gate of the mansion. Um, he opens the gate all the way over so that it traps uh, Riley and Trevor behind that gate. Riley, you can kind of see the gears moving in her head as she's in this situation because the chatterer is attacking Trevor at this point. So, you know, we kind of see her gears moving and then she looks down at the box with the blade sticking out of it. And she has the bright idea of stabbing the chatterer with the box. Um, I, I personally wouldn't have thought that would work in this, you know, in this world and the rules around this whole thing. But guess what? As soon as she stabs the chatterer, he takes a few steps back. And we see uh, we see Hell Priest kind of crack a sly smile. She lifts up her two fingers in you know the motion that we're all familiar with, and out come the chains. We see six chains come out and grab the chatterer, and basically just pull them apart into just pieces. So, yeah, my favorite my favorite Cenobite of all time was the only Cenobite who gets taken out in this movie. That's upsetting, but there it is. <laughs> um, but it's a glorious scene because he just bursts into, you know, just a, a cloud of blood and body parts all over the place. So it's pretty epic. So at this point, right at this point, they have, you know, they've gotten rid of four humans and one Cenobite. So they've gotten through five configurations. At this point, Riley says, well, if, if, if it happened, if I could do it with the chatter or, or with that particular demon, I should be able to do it with any of the other demons. So she has the bright idea of opening the, you know, the box that's basically protecting the house, the uh, steel frame that's uh, that's in the shape of the, the, the lament configuration. And she decides, OK, well, let's try to let one of these things in so that I can stab it with this. And hopefully that'll put an end to it because that'll be the sixth uh, sacrifice. Of course, you know, it's a horror movie, so shit is going to hit the fan. Once they let uh, they let a demon in, uh, it's I believe I think, yeah, this is the asphyx. The demon that they let in is the asphyx. Uh, this this is a, a, another female Cenobite with her arms kind of. um tied together with like, you know, barbed wire or, you know, just kind of held together against her body. And then she has a flap of skin kind of folded over from the back of her head, covering her face. I say her because I know it's an actress who played the character. I don't know if the Cenobite is a her. So I'm just going with the, uh, you know, with the actors who played them. I also kind of, I found it interesting that not only did they gender swap Hell priest in this movie, they kind of gender swap the, dy- the the gender dynamic of this whole group. In the original uh, Hellraiser, we had three male Cenobites and one female. We have the opposite here. Uh, our four main Cenobites consist of three female Cenobites 
and uh, one male. And the three females are all different nationalities. You know, you get your Caucasian, uh, one black girl and one Asian girl. So, yeah, this movie is uh, it's trying to be as inclusive as possible. But at no point did I feel like they were, you know, woke beyond uh, entertainment value. Demons are well represented in this movie. There you go. Yeah. Demons don't have to just be white people. Um. So, like I said, she's uh, Riley steps outside. She has a confrontation with Hell Priest while she's talking to Hell Priest. Uh, we see uh, the gasp on one side of her and uh, the weeper on the other side of her. And then we see the asphyx start kind of, you know, slowly walking towards her. Um, like I said, the as- because the asphyx is kind of tied up, has her arms and legs kind of tied up tightly against her body, she doesn't walk very fast. So it- it's kind of like a zombie uh, stalk, if you will. Uh, basically, they are able to lure uh, the asphyx back into the house and close the gate successfully. Um, the problem is, is that once the asphyx is in the house, uh, we see it transform. It literally rips out of its confines. So the arms and legs that were kind of, you know, tied up against its body, it just kind of rips out of it and instantly starts chasing Riley, just like a madman, just starts chasing Riley. Riley eventually does get to a different, um, up, uh, an opposite side of one of the gates, just as Trevor is closing the gate. So they actually trap the asphyx in the gate. And basically we see the asphyx just kind of sitting there for most of the remainder of the movie, just stuck in that spot. Um, in the, in the time that she was running away from the asphyx, she does end up dropping the box accidentally then uh, Colin tries to find the box. He's unable to find it. But then Trevor looks over and sees that one of the secret doors in the back of the room has been left open. And obviously, at this point, we're not 100 percent sure about Trevor. Um, but when he sees the open door, he doesn't react like he doesn't say anything to Colin or Riley. He just kind of ignores it. And then at that point is when we see. Uh, Roland Voigt make his full appearance in the movie again six years after the cold open. And what we see is a very much alive Roland Voigt, but with a mechanical apparatus sticking through his torso. Uh, basically, part of it sticking out the back, part of it sticking out the front. It's basically right through his torso. And what that is, is um, when Frank, uh, excuse me, wow, I said Frank, when. Um, when Roland first completed uh, the cycle of configuration six years ago, um, his wish was for liminal or sensation. Obviously, just like Frank Cotton, this was you know a man of means who had you know many many experiences in a, in his life, and he was looking for something new. Um, the problem was is that the quote unquote sensations that he thought he was going to get. He did not get. He basically got the Cenobites interpretation of sensation. And we all know the Cenobites are all about pain is pleasure and pleasure is pain. So this apparatus that's basically inside of his chest, every time a Cenobite kills a person, we see it start to wind. And what it's winding is his nerves. It's actually like winding his nerve endings into the machinery so that every time one of the Cenobites kills a human, he feels all the pain that the human is feeling in that moment. And obviously that's not the sensation that he was going for when he first completed uh, the whole thing. So this is why he is, 
And this is where we also get the reveal that Trevor does indeed work for Roland Voigt. Yes, it was not an accident that Riley was taken to the box and that she started, you know, the whole chain of events over again. Uh, this was basically uh, Roland Voigt and Trevor's plan to basically get her to start the cycle all over again so that then Roland can finish it and make another wish of Leviathan. And of course his wish was going to be, you know, uh, put me back the way I was, you know, I want this fucking thing out of my chest. It's not the sensation I was looking for. At one point he even looks hell priest right in the face and says, fuck you. This is not what I wanted. Hell priest has some great cryptic lines about no one ever refuses one of our gifts, blah, blah, blah. Uh, Frank kind of uh, alluded to that in the original uh, Hellraiser 2, where, where he didn't really appreciate the gifts of the Cenobites, and that's why he was trying to get back into the real world, blah, blah, blah. And like I said, um, let's see. So after Roland makes his appearance known, he stabs Colin with the box, with the blade sticking out of the box. Colin is now the target for the Cenobites and we see uh, we see the gasp, uh, the Asian one, basically chasing Colin through the house. I say chase, but Cenobites don't run. We all know that. They 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 kind of trot like Jason Voorhees, just nice and slow and prodding. So um let's see, uh the gasp, Trevor and and Colin and Riley all have all kind of end up in the same room together. Um the gasp basically wraps uh, wire around Colin, very much like Suspiria, you know, with our uh, one of the early kills in Suspiria, the girl falling on the razor wire in the closet. It's kind of vaguely similar to that. But, um, you know, like I said, cables all wrapped around Colin. Riley pleads with the gasp saying, no, I didn't pick him. Uh, the gasp, of course, retorts with, well, he was chosen. His blood is in the box. And and then the gasp looks at her and says, if not him, then someone else. And of course, Trevor's standing right there. This is after Trevor has admitted all the deceit and everything, his plan of getting uh, Riley to open the box and, you know, start this whole thing all over again. So she does the obvious thing. She ends up stabbing uh, Trevor with the box, uh, not with the blade, because at this point, there's no blade sticking out of the box. At this point, the the box is in its final configuration. It's in its Leviathan configuration, uh, a shape that we're all familiar with. I'm not sure what the name of that shape is. It's kind of that long, thin diamond shape. I'm sure there's a name for that shape, but I can't think of it. And so instead of stabbing him with the blade, she actually just jams the thing right into his torso, the point of it, the top point of it, just stabs him. As soon as she does that, the cables that are holding up Colin instantly fall off him. Colin falls to the ground. He's still alive. And then we see the cables go and grab Trevor. And instead of wrapping him up in like an upright position, they're actually, the cables are pinning him to the floor. At one point he tries to get out with his arm and we literally see one of the uh, wires de-glove his entire arm. Um, anyone who doesn't know what de-glove is, it basically means it pulls all of your skin off of your hand and lower arm. Um, you know, very gruesome. And then finally, you know, the, he's uh, dispatched. And at that point, all six sacrifices have been made, but the Cenobites are still talking to Roland as if he completed the cycle, even though he didn't. 
So they basically are, you know, asking him what he wants. He basically decides at this time he wants power. So he chooses Leviathan, which is, uh, you know, the configuration for power. At that point, the machinery falls apart. The machinery that's, you know, in his chest, in his torso, starts falling off piece by piece. And then we see the hole in his chest start to heal. And suddenly, um, Roland is human again. He's completely human. And, but at the, at that moment, when he makes the decision to take power, we see one single gigantic, oh, by the way, I forgot to mention at this point, Leviathan is here. Um, we see the great shot of Leviathan on basically above the house. That's when we hear the original Hellraiser theme. I'm all excited. And like I said, we see that single thick ass chain literally go right through Roland and basically just start to um, kind of pull him up into Leviathan, if you will. And at that moment, Colin and Riley are coming out of their situation, you know, where Trevor was just killed. And Riley is actually holding the box in its Leviathan configuration. Um, but she knows that she's going to have to speak to Hell Priest. She can't just leave because she is still technically the owner of the box as of right now. She ends up speaking to the Cenobites in a, in a very formal conversation. And obviously all throughout the movie, you know, she's been talking about resurrection. She's been talking about bringing Matt back. Very similar to A Dark Song, another movie that I absolutely adore that a lot of the horror community didn't like. Just like the main character in uh, a dark song she's looking for revenge the entire fucking movie but then when she's actually faced with the image of her guardian angel she asks for the ability to forgive in this movie rather than uh choosing lazarus which of course is the configuration for resurrection she decides to take uh lament which is life so basically she will be allowed to live her life, but the way that the hell priest explains it, she has to live her life with all of the guilt and the grief and have to live with the fact that all of these people are dead because of her actions. And then that's when hell priest gives her final line of you have chosen the lament configuration. And yeah, I'm sorry. I got fucking goosebumps. Like I said, anybody who's a 30 plus year fan of the novel who doesn't get goosebumps from that line. I, I got to question their, uh, their love of this franchise. Cause that is such a huge thing. Like I said, the fact that we actually get the explanation of what the lament configuration finally is something we've been waiting for, for what 10 movies now about something like that. So, um, so yeah, basically the Cenobites let her go. She's allowed to live and she leaves the house. She leaves the mansion with Colin in tow, they get back out to their car, uh, to uh, to Riley's car, and, you know, she she doesn't start the car right away. She takes a breath, and then Colin basically asks her what happened in there, because Colin didn't go into the room with the Cenobites. He basically told Riley, you need to take care of this yourself, so he sent her in there, real brave of him. Um, but when they're in the car, he basically says what happened. Uh, Riley looks at him and says, I made a choice, and... Basically, Colin looks at her and says, was it the right choice? And Riley never answers. She just kind of stares into the camera for a few seconds and fade to black. We think that the credits are about to start. But no, 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 my friends, we still have one more scene, a fucking epic scene where we see Roland Voigt 
in a pure white room. He is completely hairless. He has no eyebrows, no nothing. He's totally hairless and he's totally white. It almost looks like he's been painted white. I don't know if that's just what flesh looks like in the, uh, in the, you know, the nether realm or whatever the hell they are, but he's totally white with these big bright red eyes, like bloodshot red eyes, very Christopher Lee and house of Dracula or horror of Dracula, whatever it was. And, what we see or we hear a voice we hear just this voice it's not hell priest's voice it's i'm assuming it's supposed to be leviathan uh we just hear the voice saying well you know you wanted you wanted this power and knowledge and now you are going to get all of it and what we see is his skin start to get flayed off of his body uh strips of skin start getting peeled off and i mean magically like there's not like an entity there peeling the skin off of him. We literally see it just kind of start to peel off of itself. Strips of it peel off. We see his legs get completely degloved. All of his skin is taken off. And um, we, the last shot is basically the sides of his lips are ripped out, out to the outer edge. And we see basically his jaw is completely exposed. I'm, I'm not, I don't know if they're implying that he's the new chatterer, but he does kind of, you know, with his teeth exposed like that, that seems like he's a new version of it. But then the movie ends with just that final shot of him after his skin has been contorted. And, um, and the cool, th- another cool thing I like is that hell priest isn't the only Cenobite with pins in her head. In fact, Every Cenobite in this movie has pins in them. Obviously, Hellpriest is the only one that has them on her head, uh, at least in abundance like that. But the pins are actually what Leviathan uses to keep the flesh on your body. Basically, after they rip the skin off of your body, they reattach it to different parts of the body to make it look like clothing. Uh, Like I mentioned earlier, the basic design of the Cenobites is they're basically all naked, but their skin has been kind of torn and mutilated to kind of look like the basic visage of clothing other than the gasp, the Asian girl. She's just flat out naked. (laughs) She's pretty much just naked the whole movie. They're all naked, like I said, but she's the only one that looks naked. Like when you when she walks on the screen, you're like. You know, your your eyes are instantly focused on her body because she's just butt ass naked with and she actually probably has the least amount of mutilations on her body, too. So uh, she kind of has that Angela look, you know, where her head and neck are kind of split the skin on her neck. That's why they call her the gasp, because it looks like she slit her throat lengthwise, kind of like in that movie Moloch that we reviewed a couple of months ago. Anyway. Uh, our final shot is Roland up on the cross in the Jesus Christ pose. Oh, yeah, there is allegory there, my friends. Basically screaming into the light, and then the movie ends. And there it is, my friends, Hellraiser 2022. Maybe not a movie that's going to make everyone happy, but a movie that I, A, made me incredibly happy, both as a movie fan and the book fan, and just gave me everything that I wanted, everything that I've been waiting to see in a Hellraiser movie for the past 30 years. I got with this one. It's not a perfect film, mind you folks. I'm not saying it's a 10 out of 10, not by any stretch, but considering what I expected, this movie was a huge surprise for me. So I will absolutely defend it to the death. Gentlemen. Uh, Okay. Yeah. I think uh, I got about what I was expecting too. And that's why I felt it was, a lackluster <laughs> it's too Anything, bad it really is any, like i said i mean i've said it before 
Um, like when I've said it before, when people don't like a movie or the other way around, when people like a movie that I hate, I'm flat out jealous of those people because I want to like every horror movie I watch. I legitimately do. When people loved the original Terrifier, but I wasn't a big fan of it, it kind of sucked because, you know, I wasn't I wasn't one of the cool kids. I didn't like Terrifier as much. Obviously, that was rectified this weekend. But again, conversation for another show. Um, ultimately, yeah, I, I'm, I'm going to die on this hill. I love this movie. I loved every fucking minute of it. No, it didn't need to be two hours. I fully admit that there are many. I mean, you could see the cuts that could be made in the movie. But it doesn't mean that I lamented the fact that it was two hours. I, in fact, I enjoyed every minute of it and will definitely watch it again. Hell, I will probably watch it. Oh, I'll definitely watch it before the end of the year for my top 10 recap. But yeah, this, uh, you know, it sucks. It sucks that you guys didn't like it. It really does. But uh, I just so loved it. I don't care. <laughs> um, I don't know what else I can say at this point. Yeah, I mean, I don't know. Like I said, I didn't think it was bad necessarily. It just was kind of lackluster. Like, like it was like a one-time watch. Okay, I've seen it, and I don't really feel compelled to revisit it. It's it's more like that kind of thing. Um, I don't know, Don, any any final words from you? Uh, I I mean, I I said this once, and I'll say it again. I don't know if it was me, if it was my internet connection, if it was just something weird with my TV, but it was just so dark. It just got so frustrating to me that I was really contemplating turning it off. If I can figure that out, I will give this another rewatch because to me, it was so dark that I couldn't see what was going on, that it became really frustrating. So, like I said, if I can figure that out, if it's a color grading thing, if it's a, something to do with my connection, if it was something something else that I don't know what it was, I will give this a rewatch because, to me, that was my biggest overrating issue was that it was so dark I couldn't tell. And if I can figure the reasoning for that one out, I am down to give this a rewatch because that was the majority of my issues with it. I mean, yeah, it's bland and it was kind of boring. But my main overarching issue was that it was so dark I couldn't tell. And if I can figure out what caused that, I will give this a rewatch. So you'll you'll get bland and boring and gorgeous 4K? If that was the cause, I, I, I will fully admit I was tuned out a lot because I couldn't see what was going on. That, was to me, was a major issue why I wasn't paying attention to it. If I can figure out why, if I can actually see what's going on a little bit better, maybe I can be invested a little bit better. But, yeah, if I can figure out why, it, to me, it looked so dark that it was impossible to see what was going on, I will give this a rewatch. All right. That's going to wrap up our discussion on Hellraiser 2022. Before we get out of here, let's find out where else we can hear everybody. So, Venom, you are first up. All right. Not a whole lot, actually. We're still kind of waiting for a good day to record uh, Creature Comforts Episode 12. Um, Derek's work schedule tends to change week to week, so we're still kind of waiting on a convenient day. Same thing with the main show. We've got our movies picked out for episode 49, but again, we're just kind of looking for a day that we can record. So unfortunately, nothing new on that front. 
I do have one episode of the Crystal Lake gift shop in the can. It has, I have not submitted it yet, but I'm, I'm still putting some final touches on it. That'll oh, be yeah. out. I'm, I'm hoping that'll be out by the end of the week. I'm never in a hurry to, to put the these out. Yeah. Of that. I was going to say, we should try to do a third episode of that in this month. I, I doubt we're going to be able to my October. It, I, I mentioned that to you at the beginning of the month. My October is fairly booked. It's going to be hard for me to find a night where I can find something to do uh, to, to to record. I mean, find something, you know, uh, to find a free night where I'm not already doing something. So unfortunately, I do not think there's going to be an episode of Crystal Lake this month, um, but I'm sure we'll do one early in November. You know, once all the Halloween hullabaloo is over. Yes, I just said hullabaloo. Fuck you. Well, if, if the one I've <laughs> no, used, it, recorded, I've used it myself, you don't month, have to apologize for that. Counts. Oh, nice. Awesome. <laughs> yeah, I, I've used that myself. You don't have to apologize. Very nice. What's up, Mike? What you're saying, Mike? Oh, I was just going to say, if the one that's already recorded ends up released this month, then, I mean, that'll still count, and then we would just record one in November yeah. and try to get it out the same month. That's why I'm not really in a hurry to edit these, because, you know, our 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 record schedule is so sporadic anyway. I'm I'm not really ever in a hurry to put these out. I've also been dealing with a bad back this weekend. Um, for those who don't know, I went to see Clerks 3 uh, this past Tuesday with Kevin Smith in the theater doing a Q&A after the film. And I saw the movie in one of those very, very old theaters out here in L.A. It's the Ace Hotel Theater. And the seats are so uncomfortable. And I sat there for almost four hours between the intro, the length of the movie, and then the one hour plus Q&A afterwards. My back was just wrecked and it still hurts. Like I'm, you know, usually I'm standing up when I podcast today, I'm sitting down cause my back is killing me. So hence the delay in crystal Lake gift shop, but you know, I'm also not apologizing cause I'm never in a hurry to put that episode out any of those episodes out. So it'll be out when it's out. And as far as guest spots go, um, I know I have guest spots coming up on uh cut to the chase. Um, Maybe one other one. Oh, uh, I'll be doing something with Gary Hill here coming up soon. Um, I think we're doing a Muppet movie, actually. So I'm actually really excited. <laughs> as stupid as it sounds, I fucking love the Muppets. I don't care. I grew up on the Muppets in the 70s, my friends. So, yeah, it's a, it's yeah. a guilty pleasure of mine to this day. So <laughs> I, lo- I love that run of the Muppets. I haven't even really watched the new one. Show. Well, the new new one, the one that recently came out was not very good, but the one that came out like maybe six to eight years ago that was on ABC, that show was actually really cool. Like I, I was shocked that it got canceled because it was perfect. It, it was the perfect show for people who grew up with the Muppets like because it, it was on primetime. So it wasn't exactly a kid show. But it, I, I thought it was perfect for people who grew up with it, who are now adults in their 30s, 40s, 50s, and, you know, watching the Muppets, you know, trying to put on a production with, you know, actual adult themes and things like that. That was great. Um, but the, the most recent one was kind of crappy. I watched like two episodes of it and I wasn't real. I wasn't digging it. But, yeah, if you if you find that ABC one. Um, from like, like I said, from like 2010 or 12, somewhere in that range. I don't remember exactly when that's the good one. I don't remember. I don't remember um, if it was just called the Muppets, but it was, it was a damn good show. Yeah, it was on ABC. So it was on, you know, primetime network. So it definitely wasn't a straight kid show. 
it definitely had adult themes in there, which I appreciated. Like I said, it's almost like somebody made a Sesame Street for the people who actually grew up with Sesame Street. So I appreciated it. And the movies were great, too. The, the, the two most recent Muppet movies, The Muppets and Muppets Most Wanted. Why the fuck are we talking about the Muppets on Fresh Cuts? Uh, I don't know. Well, I, you just brought it up doing it with Gary, and then I I asked a question. And oh, right, right, the, right. <laughs> yeah, off to there the you Muppet yeah, you can't get you, were. you can't get me talking about the Muppets, my friends. I've 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 spent more time with the Muppets than horror films, and that says a lot. So, <laughs> I think all the classic ones are on Disney Plus, aren't they? Yeah, the entire run, except I, I think there's one episode that they banned. I forget which one, but yeah. Otherwise, yeah, the entire series is on Disney Plus. And if it, and if you're a metal fan, please check out the Alice Cooper episode. It's fucking awesome. Yeah, that was a gr- I when I found that the he does welcome was on there, I he went does welcome to, to my one. nightmare with the Muppets. Oh, that was so great. <laughs> one it of my favorite. Yeah. Yes. Oh, my God. At that time, Alice Cooper and the Muppets, no one in a million years would have thought they would come together. I mean, Alice in the late 70s, Alice Cooper was the king of horror rock. And yeah, that definitely doesn't go with the Muppets, but he nailed his uh, guest appearance. So, yeah, well, rock I, on. check I, that episode out. Something I always appreciate. And I was really, really young, like, you know, obviously just looking at the time frame it was on. Something I always appreciated about it as a kid and then kind of rewatching some of the years is the writers of the Muppets really like uh, bought into like whoever the guest was and what the guest is known yeah. for. They didn't like shy, shy away from like the type of content that the guest oh. made and they would adapt their skits to it. And I, I always loved that about the Muppets. They didn't try to. Yeah. If you're a Heiser horror guest. fan. Yeah. Check out the Vincent Price episode of the Muppets. Mm-hmm. That they definitely great. embrace the horror. In that one. So, yeah, I like it. Anyway, let's stop talking about the Muppets. All right. Yeah. <laughs> uh, Don, uh, any uh, place for us to check you out or Muppet uh, commentary? <laughs> oh, well, I can't offer much on the second one, but um, I, I can say uh, just a bit on the first. Um, as Vanna mentioned about an eon ago, um, I... I'm looking forward to the next episode of uh, Creature Comforts. Uh, we have the film set up. We have uh, pretty much what we want to do. I think we're just waiting on, uh, like you said, Derek, to come up with a suitable recording time. Um, I do have um, an episode scheduled with uh, the podcast The Night Club, which uh, I was on earlier this year and I'm coming back to do um, The Beyond, which is part of their uh, Gates of Hell trilogy that they're going to do. And I'm supposed to be recording with Cut to the Chase. I have no idea what movie I'm doing. Um, I I don't know anything else than that. Uh, I threw my hat in because I figured it'd be fun, and I haven't heard back from them since. So I'm supposed to be in it. I don't know what movie we're doing. Um, I don't know when we're recording. So uh, your guess is as good as mine. Um, and then, of course, I... My, the main show horror countdown is on hiatus until the new year, but back episodes can still be found pretty much everywhere you can find your show because nobody said that they can't find it on whatever service they use. So I think it's out there on enough to where you can find it. So, uh, yeah, look for that to come back in the new year, but, uh, past episodes are, uh, still out there for you to check out, uh, which 
um, I'll probably end up re-enabling um, as Season 1. So go ahead and uh, check that out when you can. All right. And for me, kind of similar, I am scheduled to be a guest on Cut to the Chase's Thrills and Chills. Uh, it just hasn't. We we did have like an original schedule date. It got pushed back. Um, so th- it'll happen. I mean, it's we're not too far into October yet, so I'm still confident it's it's gonna happen. They just gotta find like a good time for the three of us to uh, sit down. Um, as far as the main show, Venom already explained what's going on with that. Uh, watch this movie, Mike. Uh, maybe I'll get something recorded in October. It's just for the people in my immediate podcast circle of friends and acquaintances, October is a crazy busy month. So uh, I'll see if like anyone has the free time for it. You know, it's not a, it's not a hugely uh, prep preparation, heavy podcast (laughs) preparation H preparation heavy. (laughs) Uh, Um, You know, but still, it, it's October is kind of a, a month where a lot of people, even non-podcast related stuff, just people have going on. So if I get something recorded, I'll I'll put it out. If not, I'll try to get another episode out in November. And other than that, yeah, no, just fresh cuts keeps churning along regardless. Uh, is is this week Halloween Kills Week? Is that this Friday? Yep, that's it. This yep. Friday. Well, fourteenth. That solves that then. Yeah. So next episode will be Halloween. So we're doing terrifying. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, not to spoil my thoughts on that, but I liked it enough to where, like, if I could fit in, like, a bonus episode, I'd be glad to talk about that. Because, uh, you know, my uh, initial thought was, like, It's coming to Screenbox well, in November. It's coming to Screenbox in November. Okay, yeah. I, Still playing out here I mean, in yeah, it, it was playing here. Obviously, that's how I saw it. But I think it was like more of a limited run out here because I figured because we were covering um, Hellraiser this week that I was like, oh, I'll just add it to the list of things I've seen on for No More Room in Hell. But, you know, we'll see. Well, we'll just see cause how November plays out because October is, is full. But uh, when the time comes, we'll see if it's if it's a good time to bring it up here. But anyways, yeah, that's about it for me. Um, like I said, Halloween Kills is next episode. And uh, yeah, that's it. So that is going to do it for this episode. Thank you, everybody, for listening. It's it's time to get out of here. Let's say bye to the listeners. Later. We have such sights to show you. Peace.